This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. Well, this year started in an attempted coup and an attack on our capital. It's ending with criminal indictments for some of those who took part in the planning and execution of the attack. But so much more happened this year. We've now lost more than 800,000 people to COVID. But the arrival of safe and effective vaccines offers hope. A new president and a new government has made progress on important issues But obstructionists are getting in the way of desperately needed reforms. And all along the way, so many impressive activists are fighting tirelessly to make the world better and more just for all of us. This week, we revisit some of my favorite moments from the show this year. Just absolutely stunning images today here at the Capitol as protesters overran the Capitol and multiple law enforcement agencies had to be called in after a number of them not only breached the building, but breached the very floor of the House and of the Senate. Repeat after me. I, Joseph Robinette Biden Jr., do solemnly swear. I, Joseph Robinette Biden Jr., do solemnly swear. That I will faithfully execute that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. Office of President of the United States. We have grim news this morning in our fight against COVID-19. NBC News has confirmed that over 800,000 COVID-related deaths have been reported in the U.S. since the start of the pandemic. I'm so tired. So tired, y'all. Of Greg Abbott. And Brian Kemp. And Ron One of the most magical moments we've had on the show is when the poet Kwame Alexander, author of the book A Light for the World to See, joined us and recorded a new poem live on the podcast. We all had goosebumps. Do you have one overarching message that you would tell to all children and adults in America? Well, I'll, I'll answer this like this. I'll answer that with a poem. So your choice, a really short poem or a medium poem. What do you want? Uh, Medium. Oh, I knew you were going to say that. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, 
mean, unless you want to do a short. But no, nah, nah, it's all good. We're going to give this to you live. This is for the unforgettable, the swift and sweet ones who hurled history and opened a world of possible, the ones who survived America by any means necessary, and the ones who didn't. This is for the undeniable, the ones who scored with chains on one hand and faith in the other. This is for the unflappable, the sophisticated ones who box adversity and tackle vision, who shine their light for the world to see and don't stop till the break of dawn. This is for the unafraid, the audacious ones who carry the red, white, and weary blues on the battlefield to save an imperfect union, the righteous marching ones who sang, we shall not be moved because Black lives matter. This is for the unspeakable. This is for the unspeakable. This is for the unspeakable. This is for the unlimited, unstoppable ones, the dreamers and doers who swim across the big sea of our imagination and show us the majestic shores of the promised land. This is for the unbelievable, the we real cool ones. This is for the unbending, the black as the night is beautiful ones. This is for the underdogs and the uncertain, the unspoken, but no longer untitled. This is for the undefeated. This is for the undefeated. This is for you and you and you. This is for us. Kwame Alexander, what a blessing and gift you are to the world. President Biden took office in January and immediately started enacting a bold progressive agenda. But many of the most important parts of what he wanted to accomplish were either weakened or blocked entirely in the Senate because of an outdated and racist procedural technique known as the filibuster. Adam Gentleson, former Senate staffer and author of the book Kill Switch, joined us on the show to discuss just how bad the filibuster is for America. So what is a filibuster exactly? Well, that is what they are, a waste of time. Basically, a filibuster is any procedural action that delays a vote in the Senate. The most well-known examples of filibusters are when a senator or group of senators takes the Senate floor for a speech and does not yield it until three-fifths of the Senate agree to end that filibuster. That's the rule that Aaron Burr recommended the Senate get rid of. He didn't recommend that they get rid of it because he thought the Senate should have unlimited debate. He recommended that they get rid of it because no one used it at the time. Obstruction was not a major problem in the original Senate. Senators considered it beneath their dignity to talk in an obstructionist way, to try to delay their colleagues. They, you know, prided themselves on having a thoughtful debate and they would speak until they'd had their say, but then they wouldn't sit down. Imagine that, exactly. And so in 1806, Aaron Burr had just presided over an impeachment trial, actually, and he made a series of recommendations where he said, let's clean up your rule books a little bit. Let's streamline things. It's very confusing. One of the recommendations he made was to get rid of this rule. So that didn't create the filibuster, but it created a loophole because now there was no formal way to end debate once it started. It took several decades for people to even realize this loophole existed. But then John Calhoun, senator from South Carolina, the sort of spiritual godfather of the Confederacy, came along. And he realized that this loophole existed. And he started to create what we would identify today as the original talking filibuster. And so he started giving long speeches 
and claiming that he was doing this in defense of free speech and the minorities on limited debate in the Senate, all the sort of things that we hear today in defense of the filibuster. Uh, and so he took this loophole that had been created by Aaron Burr and he turned it into the talking filibuster. And that is how it began. It, this wasn't until the 1830s, 1840s. So this was 50 or 60 years after the Senate was created and after most of the framers had passed away. It was not an original feature. It was brought into being because John Calhoun needed a way to increase the power of the constituency that he represented, which was slaveholders, to prevent the gradual abolition of slavery that was happening at the time. So that's its origin. It was the, the need to empower a numerical minority of senators against the steady march of progress. And often that specifically the progress they were trying to prevent was efforts to alleviate the suffering of Black Americans. First, the abolishment of slavery in the uh, middle of the 19th century, and then later the first rudimentary efforts at civil rights in the early 20th century in the Jim Crow era. Okay. I want to unpack all of that a little bit more thoroughly. So tell me the link between the filibuster and white supremacy, and then how did it come to be associated with Jim Crow? So the link is essentially that throughout our history, there were times when a majority was bent on progress for civil rights or abolition. And a minority, a numerical minority, not a racial or ethnic minority, a numerical minority wanted to stop that majority from making progress. And so they needed to increase their power. That is why Calhoun innovated this talking filibuster in the 19th century. But the talking filibuster was useful only for delay. There were no rules on the books that would allow you to actually stop a bill altogether. He made very clear that his explicit goal was to try to give the minority a veto over anything the majority wanted to do. But the rules of the time still heavily prevailed on the idea of majority rule. And so the best he could do was create this tool to delay bills. And you could basically delay as long as the filibusters themselves could go on. So it's dependent on the stamina of the people using it at the time. Eventually, they had to sit down and shut up, and then the majority could prevail. There was no way to raise the number of votes that it took to pass a bill. So if you could persuade people to come over to your side, you could maybe block it. But if you couldn't win the argument, you lost it, and the bill that you were trying to block came up for a simple majority vote and passed or failed on that basis. I mean, so fast forward to Jim. Yeah, so it's, it's that that was the original connection. But then there was an even stronger connection in the Jim Crow era because in 1917, a rule was introduced that put a supermajority threshold on the books for the first time. And this supermajority threshold was intended to end the filibuster. Essentially, what was an attempt to restore the rule that they had gotten rid of at Aaron Burr's direction in 1806. But instead of allowing a majority to end debate, as that rule had done, they said it had to be a supermajority to end debate. This was at a time when it was still traditional for the majority to yield. And the idea was that a reasonable supermajority of senators could come together and say, okay, we've heard enough, wrap it up, let's move on to debate. What Southern white supremacist senators started to do was use that supermajority threshold and turn it into the de facto vote for passage, but only on civil rights bills. The filibuster itself uh, ought to be modified and not be able to apply to civil rights and voting rights. That's what was used to deny uh, black folks uh, the vote. It was denied, uh, it was used by Strom Thurmond from South Carolina back in 1957 uh, to fight the Civil Rights Act of 1957. We know uh, that there is a difference uh, between denying people constitutional rights and extending debate. 
And what's really important to understand is that civil rights bills could have passed at this time. The House of Representatives was passing anti-lynching laws and anti-poll tax laws by large majorities starting in the 1920s. These bills were coming over to the Senate where they had majority support in the Senate and they had presidents of both parties who were ready to sign them. So we could have passed anti-lynching laws and anti-poll tax laws as early as the 1920s and 30s. But the Southern senators, in order to maintain white supremacy, started taking this rule and making civil rights bills have to clear a supermajority threshold and turning this vote to end debate at a supermajority threshold into the de facto vote on passage of the bill. But from the end of Reconstruction in 1877 until 1964, when we passed the first major civil rights bill, the only bills that were killed by the filibuster and made to clear this higher threshold were civil rights bills. One of the most damaging and terrifying thing to see in the Trump era was the rise of authoritarianism in this country. It's fundamentally anti-democratic and the opposite of everything we strive to be as Americans. And yet, it's flourishing. I invited Ben Rhodes, former senior Obama White House staffer and author of the book After the Fall, to discuss what it means to be American in this whole new world. What does it mean to be an American right now? You ask the best possible question. The simplest question is usually the best question, right? Because what's so interesting to me about this is I set out to write this book that might seem complicated to people. But again, I urge you, if you read it, it's a personal journey more than a work of wonky analysis. And what I found is I was trying to figure out what was going on around the world is, hey, actually, the most important question is the one you just asked. What does it mean to be an American? Because before we can fix any of this other stuff I'm talking about, we have to answer that question for ourselves. I believe what it means to be an American is that we are a country made up of people from everywhere. We all came from someplace else except indigenous people here. And we are an experiment as to whether that can work. Can there be a multiracial, multi-ethnic democracy made up of people from everywhere? And that works. And the reason that's so important to us is because if that can work here, then it can work in the world. If that idea can succeed here in America, this is why people around the world watch what happens here so closely. It can work in other places. I think that's a contested idea, though. I think maybe Republicans would occasionally pay lip service to that. But if you look at Make America Great Again, America First, all this stuff, that is the opposite story. That is a story that says America is for some people, not others. That's always been the case in our history. We've always had two stories. We had a Declaration of Independence that said all men are created equal, written by a guy who owns slaves. So we've always had this contradiction inside ourselves. But man, we really have to resolve it now. Because the reason the temperature has gone up so high is because people can feel the stakes of this debate, particularly as America is moving towards being a majority non-white country. What do you think is going to happen in the coming years? You write that no one election can undo the harm that has been done. But does the 2020 election help? Oh, yeah. I don't know where we would be after four more years of Trump. One of the things that I... One of the benefits of working on foreign policy, which can seem disconnected from America, is actually you can see this can happen anywhere, right? So when I saw January 6th insurrection, I've seen that happen in other countries. I think that's what was so terrifying, as we all have. But it was happening here. So we were like, what is happening? And that's the point is it can happen. All of it can happen here. All of it. Whatever the worst is, it can happen here. It can happen anywhere because there are human beings everywhere. We're all human. We're embedded with the same strengths and weaknesses here. And so we averted catastrophe, but 
The reality is if you study how this authoritarian playbook has been used abroad, it's not like when the Republicans lost an election, they were going to say, you know what? This didn't work out. We're done with this. And lo and behold, sure enough, they're trying to rewrite the voting laws across this country so that they can stay in power. They're literally evicting people from their party for just stating the obvious fact that the election wasn't stolen, right? This is not a party that is in any way rehabilitating itself. We have to recognize that we are going to live for some time now in this country in a situation in which one major political party is fundamentally disinterested in democracy. And in fact, their whole agenda is writing the rules so that it is no longer a democracy. So that because they have such control over the way in which people vote, over who's on the courts, that they have essentially veto over anything that happens in this country. And that, lo and behold, if they get a Trump in there again, then they can really go to work here. So we're not out of the woods here because, like it or not, like every two years that there's a national election in this country, this danger is very present. Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. Now, I've never aligned or been aligned or identified as a Republican because I just have liberal values. I was raised in a liberal household. But when I think about how different the Republican Party is just in my lifetime, it feels like there was a distinct line that was crossed that none of us are really aware of, or maybe you are aware of, where it was like, you know what, we're doing this now and nothing is going to stop us. It seems like there was no gray or I'm sure there was lead up to this, but it seems so sudden to me. And also, by the way, it seems sudden to me as someone who has been campaigning for candidates since 2000. I can't imagine how it felt to the person that was just living without being aware of what's going on politically around them. So much of the authoritarianism was able to rise because social media companies have not done their part to control the spread of disinformation on their platforms. Nina Jankowitz, author of How to Lose the Information Wars, joined us to talk about extremist movements like QAnon, their role in the January 6th attack on our capital, and what responsibility social media companies have for those attacks. I have this theory that QAnon gave all of the hate groups one umbrella. So it made them all more powerful because they had more people sort of united just under the guise of hate, not even hate of a specific thing, not anti-LGBTQ or they are just hate of everything and everyone. And so all of these different hate organizations or hate groups have come together under this one umbrella and it's making them a 
large numbers, there's estimated that it was something like 30 million people that are believers of QAnon theories, conspiracy theories. That's a lot of people. And obviously, all of this is being organized on social media sites. So my question, I guess, is what responsibility do these social media companies bear for the spread of things like QAnon and other disinformation? So let me tackle the first part about the umbrella first. I think that's a great way to describe it. And actually, another thing that's powerful about QAnon is that people might ascribe to parts of the theory or parts of the cult. But if you did a vox pop with everybody who is at the Capitol on January 6th, they might not say, yeah, I'm a QAnon supporter explicitly, but they might adhere to parts of it. They might adhere to the Jewish space laser part of it, like Marjorie Taylor Greene did, or to the save the children anti-pedophilia part of it. And that's what makes it so insidious, I think. People don't necessarily know that they've signed up to this broader cult, even though they have ascribed to one part of the branch of the tree. In terms of the responsibility of social media platforms, it's frustrating. It's so frustrating to think about what happened on January 6th and see people like Sheryl Sandberg, for instance, saying, no, it was actually not that really much planned on Facebook. It was those other platforms like Parler and Gab. Talking about violence seemed to grow as it started getting closer to the uh, congressional meeting. And there seemed to have been some indications that this could get ugly. And the president himself is, is making some indications on that front. Looking back now, do you feel like there's anything Facebook could have done sooner? Well, we know this was organized online. We know that. Um, we, again, took down QAnon, Proud Boys, Stop the Steal. Anything that was talking about possible violence last week, our enforcement's never perfect, so I'm sure there were still things on Facebook. I think these events were largely organized on platforms that don't have our abilities to stop hate and don't have our standards and don't have our transparency. It was in plain sight in Facebook groups. And researchers like me have been sounding the alarm bell about conspiracy theories and disinformation and their offline effects, the detriment to democracy for a long time, not just to social media platforms, but to folks on Capitol Hill as well. In October, I was lucky enough to testify before Adam Schiff and the House Intel Committee, and no Republicans showed up. And even among the Democrats who were there, there was some kind of incredulity about like, oh, you really think these things are such a threat that these silly memes that people post online are such a threat? And yes, I think now it is clear that they are. What I hope to see from Congress as we move toward regulation with a Democratic majority is an emphasis on transparency and oversight. I want to know what action the platforms are taking. I want them to be held to account for upholding their terms of service because right now they're not protecting users. They're not equitably enforcing their terms of service. And they're letting really harmful conspiracy theories, ones that have effects on public safety and public health, not to mention our democratic infrastructure, they're letting those proliferate. And I don't think Congress should stand for that. There are a lot of legitimate issues with freedom of speech that we have to watch out for, but we have limitations on freedom of speech in this country as well. And 
a lot of researchers, including Renee DiResta at Stanford, say freedom of speech does not mean freedom of reach. You can stand on the street corner and yell crazy stuff, but you shouldn't be able to reach 300 million people at any given time. And so I think we're going to see a lot more emphasis on figuring out exactly what's going on behind the scenes with these social media platforms and then holding them to account. And this really should not be a partisan issue, especially when members of Congress's lives were threatened so recently. I hope that we see some sense knocked into them. Although on January 6th, the evening of when they reconvened, we heard those conspiracy theories floated again. So I'm not holding my breath. This disinformation and irresponsibility by social media companies fueled the COVID pandemic. Now, more than 800,000 people in America have died of the disease, and more than 5 million around the world. Because this is a global pandemic, we need to vaccinate our way out of it to discuss the need for a free, global people's vaccine and the responsibility of wealthy nations to provide it. Gina Cummings and Dr. Vanessa Carey joined me last March. I'm really excited to speak with you both. Let's start with you, Vanessa. Can you give us an overview of what the state of the pandemic around the world looks like right now? Absolutely. Thank you very much, first of all, for having me on. It's a pleasure to be able to be here. And I think that we are one year into COVID and we are still seeing this pandemic wreak havoc all around the world in terms of the number of cases that we have seen globally, which are in the tens of millions to the number of cases that we've seen here in the United States. And people are still dying. And even as we have vaccines coming online that are creating an option for people to find a way out of this, hopefully, the reality is we're still going to see hundreds of thousands of deaths from COVID if we don't continue to practice things like social distancing, wearing masks, kindness, and finding a way to make sure that we are all safe, which is really through equitable distributions of vaccine. Yeah. And Gina, you know, I want to ask you, how is the medical infrastructure different in rich countries versus poor countries? Well, there is infrastructure, so that's a start, right? And there are protocols, which is a start. And there are resources, which are a start. So we don't often always see in some of the poorer countries, which is why moving forward, a way to distribute the vaccine that is accessible to everyone is super important. Scientists have done, you know, if you think about it, a really amazing job in this last year. We now have multiple safe and effective vaccines. And what we lack is the political will that we're going to need to increase the vaccine supply and the distribution all around the world. And it's one of the reasons that we're really pushing for a people's vaccine. And this is a vaccine that would be patent-free, that would be mass-produced, that would be distributed fairly, free of charge to every person, rich or poor, all around the world. And that is going to be pretty critical if we're going to get the kind of response that we're going to need moving forward. It really is amazing how this is something that is not just going to happen, like that a people's vaccine is something that we have to fight for. And I want to ask either one of you, what would you say is the responsibility of richer countries to those poorer countries? We live in a really small 
planet now. We are deeply connected by everything we do, by not just our humanity and our shared vulnerability to poor health, to our shared experience of wanting our families to thrive and be well, to just the fundamentals of wanting joy and laughter in our lives. But we are also linked through our economy. Our raw materials come from faraway places around the world. They're manufactured in another country, and then they're distributed from a third country, and then they show up in our house. And the reality is that beyond just the moral need for us, to be engaged in the well-being of all because we are human and we share so much. There's the really practical, the kind of enlightened self-interest of the fact that our ability to have things happen the way we like them to happen only happens if we're all safe and we're all well and we are connected. Countries are trying to do what's best for their own populations and at the same time trying to be good citizens of the world. And very quickly, as we saw the pandemic worsen in the spring, we had the development of the COVAX platform, which really brought together the World Health Organization, Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, and CEPI, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovation, each with areas of expertise. And together, they created a, a mechanism where the world could come together, figure out how to buy and equitably distribute vaccines around the world. There are now almost 190 countries and participants that have signed on to that model. And yet what we see is that something like 90% of all the vaccine doses that have been purchased have actually been done directly by countries, mostly middle-income and high-income countries, as opposed to low-income countries. From the beginning of this pandemic, I've been saying, as many others, that our individual national security is health security. And the fastest way to a better well-being is going to be to end this pandemic. So I think as a wealthy nation, we have not just the moral obligation, but we have an obligation to think about kind of how the whole world thrives. There's been some economists that have talked about this, this well-being agenda, and it's been most recently championed by the First Minister of Scotland, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, and the current Prime Minister of Iceland, all of whom have sort of talked about the fact that we shouldn't be measuring our well-being by how much money we're making or what our global GDP is. We should be measuring well-being by the time spent with our families, the quality of our lives, and how all these other things come together to make things possible. And I think that in COVID, we have a real opportunity to also think about the values that we live and this moment for us to think about how we individually thrive more if the whole world is thriving. And in this moment where we see so acutely the effects of a pandemic and how it impacts every single person on this earth, I think we have an ability to lean into this moment and to really make ourselves better as we bring everybody up at the same time and that we will all benefit from it, both from our economic bottom line as well as just from that well-being metric. As disinformation around COVID and its treatment spread, many of you had questions about the pandemic and the medications and vaccines we were using to treat it. Renowned vaccine scientist Dr. Peter Hotez joined us for a special live episode where he answered many of your questions, and we're sharing some of them here. 
These are some really great questions. Um, and thank you to everyone who's joining us today. Um, Daniel asks, do we need to take the booster from the same manufacturer as our original shot? Probably. Um, and the only, and the reason is, although it may, well, it may work, there's not a lot of data for it. So if you've gotten the two doses of Pfizer, get boosted with Pfizer. And if you got two doses of Moderna, get boosted with Moderna. Now there's some data that just came out uh, yesterday and today about the J&J vaccine, a second dose of the J&J vaccine. So I think that'll be forthcoming. And then I get asked, well, what about if I got J&J, should I get, what if I wanted to get switched to the Pfizer or Moderna? And, and the only problem, and it may work, the only problem is there's not a lot of data for it. There's some data mixing and matching Pfizer and the AstraZeneca vaccine, the AstraZeneca similar to the J&J, but, but we don't know that for certain. So we need better clarity from the White House. Uh, Isa asks, what is the difference between the CDC vaccine recommendation and the FDA approval of the Pfizer vaccine? Well, the FDA, you know, goes through the regulatory approval and to have a fully approved vaccine is is a really important milestone. What then the CDC will do is um, make rec make potential recommendations on what to do after it's licensed. So for instance, you know, once something's licensed, a physician can uh, write an off-label prescription, for instance. Um, that And so what the FDA doesn't do is regulate medical practice. So it's important to have a public health agency offer opinions and guidelines for what to do. So for instance, um, you know, some physicians will now write prescriptions for third doses, jumping the gun on the recommendation mm -hmm. coming. So the ACIP, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices from the CDC will offer an opinion on that. Or, you know, there might be parents who are desperate for their 10-year-old or 11-year-old to get vaccinated. Mm. Can you have the pediatrician write an off-label prescription for a 10 to 11-year-old? It was interesting that the, the vaccine was not approved for 12 to 15-year-olds yet. So they haven't they don't have all of the data that they want. So it's only 16 and up. And the FDA took what I thought was the unusual step on saying, mm -mm, ixnay on, we frown upon, you know, people writing prescriptions for under 12 uh, at mm. this point until we can move forward on that. So along those lines. Uh, Diana asks, what are recommendations on boosters for long haulers? Well, I think, you know, the, first of all, you know, it's not a fait accompli that the recommendation will come through for the third boost. The White House has said they're going to, you know, ask the FDA and CDC to move forward. But here, here's the, the confusing part. Um, the the level of protection against infection for the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine after seven, eight months has gone down from over 90% to 40 to 50%. So they're seeing quite a number of breakthrough infections, but the vast majority of those are with no symptoms or mild symptoms. And the the supporting data to say that there's also breakthrough hospitalizations is not quite there yet. And and so the question then is that because they're not reporting? Well, or they're not monitoring it. So the problem is we're not getting a lot of reporting data out of the CDC to, I mean, what they should have is every major medical center 
on the CDC website, we should list, look at the hospitalizations. What's the percentage of vaccinated versus unvaccinated? And um, we're not seeing that. So the question then is, you know, clearly if we're seeing a lot of breakthrough hospitalizations, then it's very important to boost. But there's debate in the scientific community. If you're not only seeing breakthrough infections, not hospitalizations, what does that mean? Well, what the White House said was, well, even if you're not seeing that yet, the fact that you're seeing so many breakthrough infections and, and efficacy has maybe declined from over 90% to 40 to 50%, that's the tip of the spear. And it's inevitable that you're going to start seeing breakthrough hospitalizations. Others in the scientific community are saying, mm, I'm not so sure that's necessarily the case. So I think that kind of debate is going on. And then, and if that's not confusing enough, you have people to say, well, look, you know, even, even if it's not protecting against hospitalizations, I don't want to get a breakthrough infection. I don't want to get long COVID. Um, so I still want the third immunization. And so I think the bottom line is now that the White House has made this statement, they've come out strongly in favor of a third immunizations, it's going to be hard to put that one back. I think it's, it's going to happen. And, and, um, and, and I, in the hope is that it's going to restore not only prevention of symptomatic illness and, and ensure that you're getting longer durable protection, but that you're um, also going to halt the asymptomatic transmission because we had that for a while. And then maybe we can vaccinate our way out of this epidemic as well if enough people ever get vaccinated. And if I've thoroughly confused you, um, it's, it's, because it, it's because it is complicated. Yeah. It's complicated um, and it should be complicated, yeah. right? Part of the problem is, you know, it's not a, you know, I mean, I mean you, you do these amazing UNICEF commercials, right? But um, it's not a 30-second UNICEF commercial. There's a lot of complexity there, and it takes time. And right. we often don't get that level of complexity and communication from our federal officials. So that's why I try to fill in the gaps and do things like this. Or from social media. Right. There's no nuance in social so media. It's, it's part well, of the it's reason hard to why say all this I started in, this podcast. It's hard to say all that in 280 characters. On January 6th, fueled by a lying president and enablers in Congress, thousands of criminals rioted and invaded our Capitol, trying to stop the certification of the election of President Biden and Vice President Harris. Congressman Adam Schiff was in the building that day and joined us to discuss his experiences and his new book, Midnight in Washington. This was one of the realizations for me on January 6th. And, and on that day, I was on the House floor for the whole bloody insurrection. And I remember as the police kept coming on the floor to make increasingly dire warnings about needing to get out our gas masks and be prepared to get down on the ground. I remember a couple of Republicans coming up to me and saying, you can't let them see you. I know these people. I can talk to these people. You're in a completely different place. And at this point, the insurrectionists were battering the doors and breaking the windows. And, you know, my first impulse was to be kind of touched that these Republicans were evidently worried about my safety. But my next impulse was to think if you hadn't been lying, 
about the election or me for the last uh, four years, in my case, and, and, and lying about the election for the last several months, none of us would need to be worried about our safety. And later, as I watched footage of these insurrectionists mauling police officers and climbing on the Capitol, I realized that these insurrectionists really believe the big lie. But the people that I served with, the people across the aisle inside the chamber, people that I've taken to calling the insurrectionists in suits and ties, they knew it was a big lie. They know it is a big lie. And they're still content to push it. And even after seeing what it brought the country to, seeing literally the blood on the floor outside the chamber when we went back in to finish that, that joint session, they were still pushing the big lie. You can't let them see you, a Republican member said to me. He's right, another Republican member said. I know these people. I can talk to them. I can talk my way through them. You're in a whole different category. In that moment, we were not merely members of different political parties, but on opposite sides of a much more dangerous divide. At first, I was oddly touched by these GOP members and their evident concern. But by then, I had been receiving death threats for years, and that feeling soon gave way to another. If these Republican members hadn't joined the president in falsely attacking me for four years, I wouldn't need to be worried about my security. None of us would. I don't know if you saw a couple of weeks ago, Steve Scalise, who's the number two Republican in the House, was on Fox on Chris Wallace's program. And Wallace asked him three times, can you just say the election wasn't stolen? Can you just say the words? And he couldn't bring himself to tell the truth. And, you know, I watched that. And I thought to myself, I can't believe that when Steve Scalise ran for Congress some years ago, he said to himself, I want to run for Congress so one day I can be part of a big lie that undermines our democracy. But then there he is. There he is now. How does that happen? And the answer is, it happens one day at a time. It happens when the president of the United States, Donald Trump, asks people in his party to do something unethical, something smallish that's unethical, and they do it. Maybe he asks them to tell a lie, which they know is a lie, and they do it. And they rationalize it by saying, well, better that I do it than whoever might follow me. And then he asks them to do something even more immoral and tell a bigger lie. And they do that, too. And pretty soon they're so far in, there's just no turning back. They're so wedded to him and to all the lies. There's no turning back because if they tried to turn back, they'd have to admit that it was all a lie and a lie that they were willing to tell. But, but no, I do want to tell you because it's not all doom and gloom. There are some real heroic stories that have come out of this chapter of our, our history. People like Marie Ivanovich, this brave ambassador who was hounded out of her post, was told not to testify before Congress and defied the president and did, and showed the courage that led others to follow in her path. You know what Liz Cheney is doing right now and Adam Kinzinger. In, Alyssa, in two people, you can see the story of what's happened these four years. Liz Cheney says, I'm not going to tell a big lie that undermines our democracy. And I will lose my position if I have to in public leadership, but I'm not going along with the big lie. And Elise Stefanik, on the other hand, who raised her hand and said, hey, if she won't tell the big lie, I will. If I can advance in the party, I will volunteer to tell the big lie and any other big lies you need me to tell. And in that tale of those two people, Elise Stefanik and Liz Cheney, you can see how power has revealed what people are about. While it can be hard to remember... 2021 wasn't all COVID and the election. Activists continued to fight for all sorts of critically important issues. One of those, which is near and dear to my heart, is the Equal Rights Amendment, 
which would give women the same constitutional protections as men. Julie Souk, author of We the Women, the Unstoppable Mothers of the Equal Rights Amendment, joined us to discuss some of the history of this amendment. So the obvious question is, why in the world has it taken more than 100 years to get it through the ratification and adoption process? So many explanations. I'll start with one, which is Article 5 of the U.S. Constitution. That is the article that we should be focusing on when we teach kids civics and the Constitution in school. But it's an article that I think nobody really thinks about and talks about. It's the article that says that you need two-thirds of both houses of Congress and three-fourths of the state legislatures to amend the Constitution. The Founding Fathers made the Constitution very difficult to amend, and they made it difficult to amend in part because they were having a lot of conflicts about the future of slavery in America, and you see that written into Article 5 as well, because the one thing that they made unamendable was the slave trade until 1808. And they also made it so that there was a separate, even harder rule to change the equal representation of the states in the Senate. And that was deliberate because they wanted to make sure that a lot of these slaveholding states maintained a certain proportion of seats in the national legislature. And I think the two-thirds of both houses of Congress and three-fourths of state legislatures was also designed so that you'd have to have a very strong consensus in order to change anything in the Constitution. And if you look at what that means today, like we have 50 states, and that means that if you have 13 states that are against a constitutional amendment, it's not going to pass. And that really means that the former slaveholding states have veto power over any constitutional amendment that we try to pass today. And then if you also think about Congress, two-thirds of Congress, we're so polarized that it's like even more impossible than the founding fathers imagined back then. But I think that's the primary explanation as to why the U.S. does not have an ERA, whereas most constitutions in the world do. I want you to say that last sentence again. Most constitutions in the world. Most constitutions in the world have an equal rights amendment that protects the equal rights of women. Let me ask you this. What countries do not have an equal rights amendment in their constitution? The U.S. doesn't have one. You know, it's really hard for me to name any other country uh, that doesn't. Interesting. Interesting, isn't it, that we are the only modern industrialized nation that doesn't have an equal rights amendment in our constitution. So we talked about 1923, the ERA was introduced, and then there's kind of like this gray area until the passage of the ERA through Congress in the 1970s. First of all, what was happening in between those two times? And second of all, what major figures in the 20th century leading up to the passage of the RA were instrumental in getting it through Congress in the 70s? In the 1920s, when it was first introduced, it didn't really get off the ground. And there are many explanations for that. An important one is that not all of the advocates for women's rights were totally in support of the ERA. The politics were very difficult because you had a very conservative pro-business Supreme Court. And this conservative pro-business Supreme Court at around this time 
was striking down any kind of labor law that was good for working people. And in response to that, the social reformers got some laws passed that were specifically protective of women workers. So minimum wages and maximum hours for women only. And the Supreme Court didn't strike those down. They just figured since women can't even vote, they might as well have some extra protection under the law. So there were laws that were very good for working class women, but they were for women only. And some of the social reformers believed that the courts, if they got an ERA, would use it against working class women. And until the courts were going to change, they were going to oppose giving the courts more power by giving them another amendment that they could play with. So that was the real story. But everything shifted around the time of the New Deal because the court changed and the courts started to be more friendly to labor legislation. In 1938, the very first federal minimum wage was set at 25 cents an hour when Franklin Roosevelt signed the Fair Labor Standards Act. The wage is not tied to the rate of inflation, so it only goes up through congressional action. And 22 times since 1938, Congress and the president have worked together to raise it. So then people weren't so worried anymore about the judges rejecting labor laws. And I think that in combination with World War II which led to the UN Charter and the UN Declaration on Human Rights. The UN Charter explicitly says that equal rights between women and men is a fundamental principle. And that was very important to the drafting of many constitutions in Europe after the war. Most of the constitutions that are operative in other countries were written in the 20th century or the 21st century, not the 18th century during slavery. And that's a very important factor in understanding why, when they began, the idea that women should have equal rights was as important as having free speech or prohibiting cruel and unusual punishment or torture, you know, those kinds of things. Whereas I think in the United States, because we have the oldest constitution in the world, like everyone else is driving a car and we're still on the horse and buggy constitution. That's the problem. And it's a problem that manifests itself in many legal arenas, not just gender equality. And finally, in October, I had the honor of joining several of my heroes in testifying before the House Oversight Committee about the Equal Rights Amendment. Here is my opening statement from the testimony. Madam Chair, Distinguished members of the committee, thank you for holding this hearing and for inviting me to share some thoughts with you today. Um, While I will speak briefly about the importance of the ERA, this hearing is not a debate on that amendment. That debate is over. We won. The states have directed Congress to amend the Constitution, and now it is the duty of Congress and the administration to get out of the way and remove the arbitrary, unnecessary, and shameful deadline that was cynically imposed nearly half a century ago as a poison pill. Since the earliest days of our nation, women have been fighting, not waiting, but fighting for inclusion in our founding document. From the Seneca Falls suffragists to Alice Paul, 
from Shirley Chisholm and Gloria Steinem to the inspiring generation of young women and queer activists and allies of the new millennium. We have pleaded for centuries a simple and powerful thing, equality under the law. I want my daughter Bella to grow up knowing she has the same rights as every man in this country. And I want my son Milo and every boy in America to know that too. They deserve a government that cannot treat them differently because of gender. If there is one word which defines the American identity, it is freedom. We call our president the leader of the free world when we present ourselves to other nations advocating across the globe for democracy and human rights, it is freedom which drives that discussion. There are even members of this very committee who belong to something called the Freedom Caucus. But how can we be a free people when our governing document does not prohibit discrimination against more than half of the population? The answer, of course, is that we cannot. The lack of constitutional protections for anyone who is not a cisgender man is a blemish on the very idea of Americanism. As long as the Constitution allows gender-based discrimination, the United States can never achieve the greatness to which it aspires. 85% of UN member states have constitutions which explicitly guarantee equality for women and girls. Madam Chair, if you lived in Latvia or Iceland, you would be assured of having the same rights as the men on this committee. Here in the United States of America, you are not. Today, a white man on this committee will probably ask me which rights American women do not have that American men do. Allow me to preempt that question. There are many current gender-driven injustices in our country. But the Constitution is not simply about the present. The Constitution is about what we bring far into the future. It exists to protect us from the what-ifs. The ERA will outlive every one of us. It is a permanent protection of our most basic rights. Your obligation to the people of our nation, not just today, but in the centuries to come, requires you to take action. The framers failed us when they did not include women in the Constitution. Congress failed us when it added the deadline for ratification of the ERA. You, the members of this committee, have the opportunity and the obligation to fix the Constitution and stop it from failing us. Will you take it? Will you answer the call of history and the promise of the future? Or will you continue to allow the enemies of equality to continue to prevent America from being a truly free nation? These are your only options. Thank you for your time.
Thank you from the bottom of my heart for being here with me week in and week out in a world that can seem scary and overwhelming a lot of the time. I hope that 2022 brings us all health, peace, safety, and justice. Happy holidays, everyone. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson, audio editing and engineering by Mache Lewandowski, and music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry, not sorry.